Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm your host for today, Gary David. Adam is busy getting ready to give a keynote at the FLIPA Online Summit of Business Anthropology. So we're looking forward to hearing more on how that event went. Sounds great and sounds much needed addition to the broader conversation around what social science has the opportunity to contribute to our understanding and doing of business. So go get them, Adam. In a similar vein, today's podcast is a recording of an event that I hosted at the end of July entitled Inspiring Racial Equity, How CX Professionals Can Guide Their Organizations to Tackle This Urgent Issue. The event was a joint effort of the Boston and Atlanta chapters of the Customer Experience Professionals Association. And when I say a joint effort, I do mean joint effort. There was a tremendous team of folks from both chapters who worked together tirelessly to put this event on. And I really can't say enough about their dedication to the topic and their commitment to see the conversation continue to move forward beyond the panel and the webinar. Most of the folks involved in this, including me, would be considered quote unquote allies, would be considered to be allies. By that I mean they're people who may not have to suffer the daily indignities of structural racism and discrimination, but see both of these things as a malevolent force that needs to be directly confronted and addressed in whatever quarters possible. For this group, the field of engagement is the organization. And what can customer experience professionals do to change these internal dynamics within these organizations, which hopefully will contribute to a broader social change? To see this as just one webinar in many ways would be a correct assessment. By itself, there's not much that one webinar can do. However, when it's part of a chorus of voices that reach more broadly together, there is much noise that can be made. And it's from the harmonizing of those voices from different parts of our society that the music of social change can be made and can have a broader impact. And I can tell you that the team is still working together, thinking about moving into the next phase of activity to further this message, trying to get feedback on what else we can do to further this message and give people the tools to affect this change wherever they're located in their organizations or even in their lives. And so it's not just furthering the message. The message is important. We need to get it out there. But we also need to put in place conditions and skills to help create that change. So we hope you're able to learn from those great experiences brought by the panelists. And it was an amazing panel. I was very honored to be part of it. And I learned a lot in the process as well. I also learned from the questions that the audience asked. And we really appreciate all the audience members who attended and really engaged in the conversation thoughtfully. As I said, it was a privilege to be part of the conversation, and we're happy here at Experience Design to bring it to you. Thanks. All right, I think we're going to get started. 
I want to thank everybody for joining us for a joint event for the CXPA Boston and Atlanta on inspiring racial equity. We're going to start things off with uh, Greg Melia, who is from the CXPA. Greg? Thank you everyone for joining us tonight. My name is Greg Melia and I'm the CEO of the Customer Experience Professionals Association. Today's webinar exemplifies CXPA's core values, a commitment to diversity, a focus on authentic leadership, and being tireless advocates for customer experiences that improve people's lives, all people's lives, including all races. This program is the result of visionary leadership and collaboration between the Atlanta and Boston CXPA networks and Bentley University. We're thankful uh, to the member leaders that created this program to help each of us advance our organizations towards greater racial equity. Today's facilitator is Gary C. David, PhD, CCS, who's professor of sociology at Bentley University, where he teaches courses on organizational culture and change, experience design, and social justice. Professor David, thank you in advance for your time and insight today, and to each of the panelists, thank you for your sharing of your insights. The webinar is yours. Thank you very much, Greg. I appreciate it. And it's wonderful to be part of this event. And I want to thank CXPA. I want to thank the sponsors. I want to thank my employer, Bentley University. Always a good idea to thank your employer when you get the opportunity. <laughs> and we have a tremendous panel with us today. Uh, my role in this is to help moderate and ask questions, but really to let them speak from their experience. And as you'll see here in a moment, it's a pretty vast experience. And they've done a tremendous amount of work around customer insights, marketing, social and organizational change, and a lot of other factors. So a few things I want to point out for the audience today. The first thing is if you have a question that you'd like to ask, you can do so using the question and answer function. You can also do that anonymously if you wish to remain anonymous with your questions. We have a lot of questions that were provided before the webinar started, but we are always uh, eager to hear from you and your thoughts as we talk about these topics. If you want to have a conversation about themes, topics that are being discussed by the panelists, by all means, feel free to use the chat function, um, which you can find at the bottom of your screen. I guess we're probably all Zoom veterans by now or some kind of virtual functionality, so you can probably find it pretty easily. So questions in the questions and answer chat in the chat, and we'll try to get to all the questions that we can, knowing that we can't get to all of them, but we'll definitely continue the conversation after this for those we can't get to. So I don't think I forgot anything. If I did forget anything, I'm sure someone will uh, pipe in my ear and let me know about it. One of the things that I wanted to talk about briefly to set things up, and I'm gonna share my screen here for a second, is talking about the larger role that customer experience has played in the civil rights movement. Now, hopefully everyone can see the, the slide that um, I'm referencing here. Is that right, panelists? Yes. Excellent. I always want to make sure Professor Trick. <laughs> my research, my dissertation research was actually in Arab-owned liquor stores in metropolitan Detroit. This is just after the Rodney King verdict, 1990s. Hard to believe I'm that old, but such is life. And I was really interested in knowing what the intercultural communication was in these stores. What was the nature of the relationships and the conflicts that occurred in what I called customer service encounters? CX wasn't a thing yet. And in doing this research, it really led to a larger understanding of the role that customers, customer experience, has played in the civil rights movement in this country's history. And when you think about it, you can see things like 
lunch counter sit-ins like this one depicted here at Woolworths in Jackson, Mississippi, May 28, 1963, where people were not only trying to argue for their personhood, but argue for their personhood through their status of being a customer. And that personhood being denied by their inability to be seen as a customer. Greensboro, North Carolina, February 1st, 1960, another sit-in where people were asserting their basic rights as a customer and wanting to engage in commerce, to be able to buy something and not being able to. Chapel Hill, North Carolina, February 28th, 1960, another sit-in in front of a drugstore and a lunch counter in that drugstore. Of course, Rosa Parks, Montgomery, Alabama, 1955. Yes, she was a civil rights activist. Yes, she was a person riding a bus, but she was also a customer. She was on that bus having paid her way to have a seat and being denied equal status as a customer and as a result, a human being. We even see signs like this where we have civil rights uh, activists training to march in line to do protests, to do boycotts asking the simple question, my money is green, what color is yours? Don't buy at grants. Again, using the status of customers. And boycotts are essentially using status of customer by withholding that to achieve social change. We have Reeds in Baltimore, Maryland, where the owner there during after a protest said, we will serve all customers throughout our entire stores, including the fountains, and this becomes effective immediately a owner of a business at, at a time when a lot of businesses didn't do this, recognizing the need for social change. And today we had a whole video montage set up. We had some technical difficulties, couldn't get it to y'all. But even today, this extends. We have this story that came out of Memphis, Tennessee. Black woman in Victoria's Secrets, handcuffed by police while being a customer. She was returning product and she was being with a receipt and accused of stealing it and the police came and handcuffed her for just being a customer. We have a man denied service over wearing an I Can't Breathe t-shirt in June 20, 28, 2020, or 2020, in Clinton, Maryland. There's a picture of the gentleman with the shirt and the store owner telling him his business was not welcomed in that store. We have this gentleman going to Walgreens to get some ointment to help with the scarring over his insulin pump and being accused of shoplifting. And then when being searched, finding nothing on him to indicate he was shoplifting. And he says, I felt like I was being treated like I did something wrong. And the way they looked at me was if I was a criminal, not a customer, but a criminal. And finally, the, the topic of today's talk, you know, inspiring racial equity and not just equality. And there might be some confusion over what these terms mean, but I like this graphic, it keeps it pretty simple. On the left, we have equal, you know, people are being tr treated equally. But even when you're treating people equally, when you have inherent structural disadvantage, like in this image height, being treated equally isn't enough. The second image is equity, where the structural barrier still exists, the fence, but those who are at an inherent disadvantage because of, in this instance, height, are provided the assistance to be equal. And then finally, we have an image where those structural inequalities are removed. And it's not until those structural inequalities are removed, those barriers are removed, that we can start talking about everybody being equal.
and being treated equally because in a system that is unequal, not everyone is gonna be treated equally. So, some thoughts to set up our talk today. Let me stop sharing. So I wanna turn it over to the panelists. They did have a chance to see the videos that I uh, assembled. Uh, these videos were partly from a presentation I did back in 2018 called The Customer is Always Right Unless the Customer is Black. And we well, want to ask them about that. But first, I'm just being told, I'm being reminded that I need to uh, introduce the panelists. See, I told you if I screwed up, someone's <laughs> going to tell me that. And that's Charlotte who told me. It's always good to have people who keep you in line. First person I want to introduce is Stephanie C. Harris. Please don't forget the C. And... Mm -hmm. She is a market research and consumer insights consultant uh, with over 20 years of experience and working across a variety of different sectors. She's also the, uh, on the board of the Market Research International Institute and is a 2021 president-elect, which is, uh, having been a president of an organization, pretty big job. So best of luck to Stephanie. She has a BA from Emory and an M in psychology and an MBA from Clark Atlanta University and is an active member of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. And I believe, Stephanie, that's the new Alpha chapter at Emory and the Alpha Pi chapter at Clark Atlanta. I think I researched Alpha those Alpha Pi right. at Clark, you were close. It's Alpha Pi at Clark, um, Emory okay. is new Alpha, yes. Right, excellent. And a proud resident of Atlanta, even though she has a 313 area code on her phone, which is... Or two four eight, two four eight, which is a whole other story. <laughs> Next, we have Thomas Houston. He's the executive director of, and I think Thomas, I'm going to get this right. The, the Medici Road, is that right? Close, Medici. Medici, don't know my Italian. Where he leads their efforts to connect the dots between education, housing, and public health to reduce poverty. He brings over 15 years of experience in market research, branding, consumer behavior, innovation, and team building experience. He holds a BBA in marketing from Howard and an MBA from the Pennsylvania State University. And he is a proud resident of the District of Columbia with his family. And finally, Sandy Mathis has over 15 years of working in customer experience and consumer and customer insights experience. She holds a CCXP and is the network leader of the Atlanta CXPA chapter. So for those of you who are members of CXPA in Atlanta, you probably know Sandy very well. She has worked with a range of top consumer and business brands across industries, has a BBA in marketing, a lot of marketers around here, from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and an MBA from Pfeiffer University. Also completed the General Assembly's UX Design Circuit, which I appreciate since I teach in UX grad program. Another proud member of a, a resident of Atlanta, but she has to leave Atlanta when she goes scuba diving or skiing, because I don't yes. know if there's much of either no. in Atlanta. So thank you to the panelists, and I appreciate your time and efforts in helping to pull this together. So Charlotte took those off, telling me that I can now ask you this question. Given the videos that, that we, we, we assembled and this short intro that I presented, what stood out about you? especially in this moment, from the history, the historical context, as well as the contemporary examples. And Sandy, let me start with you. Sure. Um, so for me, the first thing that stood out is, unfortunately, um, it's not new news. Um, it's, it hits the news, but it's not new from the standpoint that we see a lot of these examples that happen um, frequently. Uh, but the, I think the reality is, while it's not new news, it should like be something that goes away. And so often a lot of these situations that get highlighted, especially the, the recent ones, are things that could be de-escalated by simply 
as I like to think about it, not taking the passive aggressive way out, which is always calling in the authorities to address it, but instead asking the questions, asking the clarifying questions of the customers. And in most of these clips, the customers asked a question back, but were not given any sort of benefit of the doubt in order to uh, really kind of get to a common um, understanding as to what happened to not have those situations occur or to be accused of those situations. So I, I think one of, the, one of the things we can pull from that is benefit of the doubt to work it out, right? Mm -hmm. Give the benefit of the doubt to be able to work it out. If you don't have that trust, it becomes a lot more difficult. Stephanie, your thoughts from looking at the videos as well as the historical context. Yeah, I agree with Sandy. It's, it's definitely not new. It's probably something that's happening every day. The question is how much of it gets escalated. Um, you know, racism isn't new. It isn't different. It might be a little different in how it's getting manifested. Um, I think what is different today that you didn't have in the past is the camera phone. Mm -hmm. And so now things are getting recorded and you can't escape it. But the other thing that um, strikes me is the lack of respect that gets played out in any of these cases. So even during the civil, right move, civil rights movement, there was a lack of respect for, the, for black people. And now in these particular instances in the video, um, there was that similar lack of respect in terms of who they are as a person and the lack of respect for just treating them with respect. Um, you know, a good example to, to, you know, in terms of calling the police and escalating it um, was the group of, I don't think you uh, referenced it in this, but there was a group of guys at Chili's standing outside talking. And instead of the manager just coming out and asking them to leave because they were closing up the uh, restaurant, they called the police and asked them to leave. Well, something as simple as a little respect to just explain to them that they're ready for them to close up. And if they wouldn't mind leaving the parking area, could have gone a long way. But now what you've done is escalated a situation to now the cops are involved and it's now in social media. So just little things um, in terms of just how quickly things can devolve. And Thomas, you know, on that point that, that Stephanie raises about, and Sandy raised about quickly calling the police, your background in working in education, there's a thing called the, the school to prison pipeline where school resource officers might very frequently be called in for a quote unquote disturbance in the classroom, which can be very minor. And this results in the child then being treated as a criminal. I was wondering if you could, you know, using your own expertise and your works with uh, Medici Road, tie those things together for us. Sure, absolutely. I would actually say um, that is probably one of the cruxes of people have been talking a lot about defund the police and not really understanding what it means. That is a core piece of that in terms of there are police or police figures in schools which are typically undermining the education system. And so how do you pull them out of schools and then create support systems that uh, help uh, students actually think about uh, education as opposed to an authority figure. And to way that that resonates to me in those images is this idea of we look at numbers as data. And so what, we, what I've been looking at for the past couple of years is that stories are data as well. And so if you look at stories as data, you typically uh, have problems uh, creating those into something that can be turned into a study. We have a bunch of kids who have a bunch of stories in school about police interrupting their day, interrupting their schooling, their education. And so if you think about their stories as data, you have a plethora of data that, you, that, that showcase that there should not be police in schools. 
you're speaking my language. I'm a qualitative researcher. I, co I collect stories. I traffic in stories. And so I really appreciate, as I tell my students, qualitative data is data too. And in a lot of the questions we received, there were some, some questions around data. And Stephanie, I think one is, is really suited for you. There was a question asked around this question of data and how to uh, really gain effective feedback. What are some of the best practices that CX professionals have found effective in gaining feedback from customers relative to this question of, of racial inequity? So talking about data in your experience in doing marketing customer insights, what are your thoughts on this? I think the biggest thing is making sure you're talking to the right people. And so, um, when you think about some of the best practices, you can use your typical focus groups, um, surveys, but the questions need to be the right questions of the people and then making sure you're getting to the right people. So your sample, making sure that, for example, you are um, not just using a gin pop um, sample, but you're using multiple sources so that you can ensure that you have appropriate representation of all the ethnic groups that you're trying to, to um, get information from. Um, perhaps even in a focus group, if you're doing focus groups, maybe have um, a Hispanic moderator for a Hispanic group. Um, if you're doing something that is um, African-American focused, perhaps have an African-American moderator as the moderator for your, for your group. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having those types of experiences for people to make them more comfortable and more open. Um, and more likely to give you that information. But just making sure that you're talking to the right people with enough representation um, and, you know, maybe even include as a part of your study as you're drafting up the discussion. Uh -oh. Stephanie's freezing a little bit. So as she's freezing, as we get this unfroze, I got... Oh, here okay, she is. Okay, got your back. Am I back? She got your back. Yeah. Oh, back. I, got, I got lost. We got all of it. We, okay. We got all of it. And okay. So you got, you heard me, but you just couldn't see me. Well, okay. I heard you and both saw you. You're okay. both been heard and seen. <laughs> all right. Good enough. Conversation. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, and Sandy, one of the things we were talking about, you know, in the times that we met before coming together was this question of intersectionality. So when Stephanie is talking about, you know, asking the right questions to the right people, to what extent does this become, in your opinion, does, it be, does this become overwhelming to a CX professional, especially when trying to think about intersectionality and how different factors like gender and race and class and you know, region of the country come together? And how do people manage or mitigate this sense of, I don't want to do the wrong thing by getting the wrong people and asking the wrong questions that stops them from trying to do the right thing? You know what I mean? I do. So I always think the wrong thing you can do is not even attempt to do anything at all, right? Like that's the absolute worst thing that you can do um, is not to even bother saying it's too much to um, actually address and start to move, you know, try to answer those questions. I think, um, and Thomas and I know from like some work that we've done together in the past is in order to figure out what the right questions are, especially when you start bringing in if, let me back up. If you have everything from under, you're trying to first figure out who your, your, your audience is, who are your customers, what is your customer base, you can start by first looking at the, you know, looking at that data and kind of understanding who it is. And that's what Stephanie was saying. When you want to start bringing in these questions around making sure that you've got enough representation, um, it's, I almost look at it in some ways, like when you talk about jury selection, they talk about a jury of your peers, but then you don't have enough people who represent who you are. So if I'm on trial for something or I'm going to court, you know, small claims court, I want to make sure that 
whoever's in the audience or in the jury box is someone who looks like me. So I think it's important to make sure that even if you don't know the right way to start out, that you at least start some sort of way by making sure you're doing small steps. And if you're gonna ask questions to understand um, better about what are those, um, those things that um, African-Americans or blacks are looking for or Hispanics or you know, people of color, whatever it may be that are underrepresented, you test out those questions. Even, and if you're a company that says, we don't have large budgets to do that, that's when I say, I hope you've got some friends that you can dial a friend and say, hey, can I run this past you? Because I have friends who don't look like me. And that is exactly what, you know, what they've done historically to say, hey, I'm not really sure if this is going to fly. What can, you know, does this look okay? And you kind of start to do that. That's the whole multicultural involvement. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thomas, I see you raising your, your finger. You have something it's to add to that. that. So most of the work we do uh, is about systemic change. And so thinking about racial right. Most of the conversation typically is always who's answering the questions or who's the moderator, but the conversation is never on who's asking the questions. And so one of the things that we could take a look at from a systemic change is, do we have enough uh, representation in the room who's actually creating the set of questions that are going to be asked? If you get that wrong, it almost doesn't matter who's answering the questions or who's moderating. And I, I'm glad you said that because I wanted to follow up with something with, with you know, uh, in your professional opinion, right? That one of the questions that was being asked is, is my organization doesn't perceive racial equity to be an urgent issue. How do I convince my colleagues and leadership how important it is? Because I think we jumped a step here, right? We've already gone to, we think it's important. Therefore, we need to ask the right question, ask the right people. But the first thing you got to do is make sure the organization sees it as something that is a, 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 an important thing to consider in the first place. So how do we get to that step? So there's one, so there's a phrase that's been made up, it's called uh, commodification. And the idea is how do you not uh, monetize racial equity, which is a hard conversation to have when you're talking about for-profit corporate America. Um, there's a foundation, and I'll try to think of it before the end of the call or, or share it later. They actually have done a study that says this, um, if racial equity is a $300 billion business for corporate America. And so just at that dollar amount alone, that's enough to at least start a conversation around the importance of racial equity. And then you also start talking about retention. Uh, you start talking about people seeing uh, what the companies they believe in or buying from companies that uh, employ people that look like them. I think there are some other uh, pieces in that that uh, allow you at least to start having a conversation. And let's be honest, like race is just a, a, an uncomfortable conversation. And if you uh, are uncomfortable, but will have that with your coworkers or your executives, and they don't want to continue to have it, like you are the most important uh, cog at that company. And if you don't want to work there, enough people are like-minded like you, that company will change their mind. So it, it, for me, I think one of the things sort of along that lines is if you're looking at what you need to be doing is you need to be tracking engagement, tracking staff satisfaction, seeing what the retention rates are, and making sure that you're looking at them not just as a holistic number, but just based on but also based on the, the different ethnic groups. So if you see some differences playing out against that, then you can now target where those issues might play. Because um, to, to Thomas's point, it's more than just diversity. This is about making people feel comfortable in an environment with them, you know, in terms of being at work, but also making sure that you, you value their opinion or their life. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's not so much about their life at work, it's about their life at home. <laughs> and that's the whole person that has to come into that office every day. 
Well, I really, I really appreciate about that point is it really starts talking about actually a class I'm teaching right now on employee experience. And your, your first customer is your employee. And as I often like to say, and I did not make this up, unfortunately, otherwise I could make a lot of money off of trademarking it. Um, if you want to improve customer experience, you have to start with employee experience. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you are going to sit there and not treat your, your internal customers first, then everything else is going to be, you know, lipstick on a pig or something else. It's going to be window dressing and not an authentic commitment to this change. Sandy, you were agreeing yeah. with me, which I appreciate. So I'll let you talk next. Yeah. So it's interesting you should bring that up. So, um, for so one of the things that people who know me know, I don't necessarily talk a whole lot about race. So this is definitely a part of that getting uncomfortable, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. The thing that is interesting is I work for a company where diversity is considered if you are a woman. It's not about race, it's actually about gender because I work for an Indian-based company. But if I think about where I've been historically, one of the things that I always feel like brings an enriching experience is when you actually uh, pull race forward and you celebrate those differences where you can learn and you find out, hey, there's less that separates us. We don't get any choice whatever skin you're, you come in, right? Like you come out whatever color you are, that's it. And then that becomes not your lot in life, but that becomes a part of th that is who you are. But it doesn't, it only represents one portion of who you are. And so I think it's important to be able to be at the point where you feel comfortable being in an organization where you feel like you can bring all of yourself to work. Um, for black women, it's everything from, can I decide I'm gonna wear my hair curly or in Thomas's case, go with you know dreads. Is that gonna be something that is accepted? Because it is a part of what people see on the outside, even though that is just a choice, no different than someone choosing to color their hair. So it's how do you make sure that the, you are in an, an, an organization that celebrates you for your similarities that are like other people in terms of we have a, a path that we're trying to go, but at the same time recognize there's a lot to be said from the standpoint of the things that make you different, that make you embrace and make you a better employee because you may not think about everything in exactly the same way as everybody else. Otherwise, you've just got that Apple commercial from way back when where it's, it's you know, you're just, or like a step for wife, right? Like it's just a, a sea of sameness. So it is a tricky, it's a tricky balancing act, isn't it? Because I've actually criticized a lot of cultural training programs because they amplify, emphasize difference. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to get people to come together when all you're telling them is how different you are. I tell my students, I'm like, it's like when you were a little kid and your parents took you to friends of theirs and they had little kids and they wanted you to play together. And it's always a little weird and a little uncomfortable because you don't know them. What if your parents told you how different you were from those other kids and then said, okay, now go play together. Mm -hmm it's a huge barrier. So at the same time, we want to appreciate and recognize difference, but we also don't want to do so to the exclusion of similarity. So we've been talking about different voices, but also not necessarily assuming that everybody is that, that categorization, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Stephanie, what do you think about that, that thought? Um, it's one of those things where you I agree with it totally. Um, and I think, you know, I saw a study, um, not too long ago about employees perceived bias. So in the sense of whether if the, if the employee perceived bias, how it affected their attitude towards the company. And so there were things like, for example, the greater the perception of bias, according to them, 
then they were less likely to be engaged with the company. Um, they were less likely, they were more likely to leave at some point and, you know, and, and be disenfranchised. And so all of those things affect your bottom line. If you can't retain your talent, you're, you know, you're wasting your money. If you can't, if your talent is underutilized, you're wasting money mm -hmm. uh, or losing right. money, I should say. So all of these things about, in, you know, in trying to ensure that you're investing within the, um, the diversity or the differences, but also the similarities of your, of your, um, of your employees, sort of allowing them to have that opportunity to um, have a voice at the table. So mm -hmm. those, those employees who felt like they were empowered, who felt like they had management who allowed them to be empowered, were more likely to stick around, were less likely to perceive that there was some bias. So those are the kinds of experiences that you wanna have within your employees. To your point, it also you know, helps the bottom line mm -hmm. in, in longer term. So um, I think definitely your focus on, on, the, on the employee first um, definitely helps the customer later. One of the things that you were talking about there, Stephanie, I actually wanted to ask Thomas about is, and one of the questions people often, or not people that often ask, it's been being asked more, I've been seeing it more online, which is always a horrible place to look for things, <laughs> but people asking the question about like, how, what evidence is there of systemic discrimination, right? Does, what, it doesn't even exist. So Thomas, in your work in education and housing and public health, what do you look for in terms of that kind of data? Sure. There's a couple of things. <clears throat> the first one is really just making sure that people are on the same page about what systemic racism is. I won't go into that conversation in this, uh, but I think that level setting is the, the first key piece. Uh, other key things we look at is um, bias. So what types of bias are embedded in decision making? And so there's like at least 16 different types of bias. And so not looking for just one type of bias, looking for multiple types of bias. Um, also, uh, talking about who is the decision maker. And so everything from um, who is the, the principal at the school to what types of testing are they using. When you look at housing, uh, most, most people know about redlining uh, as a way of systemic racism, but you look at uh, housing prices in relation to um, how much you make, like all of that is set up to be systemic racism because those systems were set up over 50 years ago. And so you're really looking at those types of uh, pieces of data when you're looking at systemic racism. So really looking at bias, who's making the, uh, the decisions, and then what uh, outcomes are measured. Uh, I think you also start looking at, at that as systemic racism as well. All right, thank you for that. Uh, Charlotte, do we have any questions from the audience that we might want to include in our conversation right now? We do have a few. Um, the first one, Stephanie touched upon a little bit, but uh, it's a two-parter. So uh, they, this, this, this asker wrote, hello panel, we're trying to consciously ensure the biases are not baked into how we design our various customer experiences. We're looking to ensure we can get a clear read on feedback from a diverse range of groups of customers in our VOC. We are also trying to ensure we invite as diverse of a group of colleagues as possible to our design workshops, et cetera. Aside from these two steps, do you have any other ideas on how we can ensure that we design our customer experiences for as broad of a spectrum as, of customers as possible? And I think all of you touched on different facets of this, but do you have anything else to add? Open it to the panel. Any thoughts on this question to help this uh, webinar attendee out? I think in there you might have said this, but I, would, I I'm, in case you didn't, one of the things I will say is maybe consider multiple sources. Just don't go to one particular source to get to the people. 
try to find them throughout various different um, ways. So whether you know you have a contact list or you you're using social media as listening tools, you try to use multiple sources as you try to get to those folks to make sure that you're getting to the people you need to get to. I, I was just going to add, um, you know, it's been a minute since I've had to write a research study, but even from the standpoint of making sure, sometimes you uh, oversample um, for certain groups. So if you need to oversample uh, to get an additional read on them, or even allowing, especially these days with as complex as you can make a survey, is even if you needed to do follow-up to get to the next level of the onion um, on understanding with, the, with those certain groups, even asking, can we follow up with you for a separate, you know, conversation or some additional questions in order to kind of pull and parse some things that you may not be clear on when it comes to um, your, your segment. So I think it's, it, there's a couple of different ways. Yeah, to you're definitely going to have to oversample if you want to get, I mean, let's be clear, when you talk about the population, if you're looking at a gen pop population, the U.S. is 13% black. Mm -hmm. So if your client is anywhere near that, that level of, um, is representative of the U.S. population, anything that you're going to do is not going to get you enough people to look at African Americans holistically or look at Asians, which are what only 6% of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. So you have to oversample if you want to look at some of these different groups as, you know, as a collective against the gen pop. So um, you definitely have to, to consider that as a part of what you're doing. Only thing I would add to that, Gary, uh, I think Gary would appreciate that is when we're talking about uh, people of color, we often take culture out when we should be putting culture in. And so mm -hmm. if you think about from a sociology standpoint, uh, people interact differently based on their culture. And so it's not just the question, but you know, the Hispanic, because of ice and everything that's going on, might not want to answer the phone. And so how do you engage somebody without the phone? And so thinking through culture and how you reach out to individuals, I think will be pretty important with making sure you can, can reach your different uh, targets. I think it's great. And I always like to hear sociology be entered into the conversation because when I was doing my research in the liquor stores um, and I had, was trying to go out to African-American communities, I often went through community organizations, went through churches, went through barbershops, hair salons. I mean, you know, going where the people who I was trying to speak with in those communities lived. And I also think a really important point that's not to get lost here and it always kind of frustrates me a little bit when we use words like Asian or Hispanic or black or white, there's such incredible glosses mm -hmm. for complexity of these different categories. And if, you know, at one level they have, they have concreteness in how we treat them. There's a saying that people perceive things as real, they'll be real in their consequences. At the other hand, they're all social constructions. And so in many ways, this idea of being quote unquote black as having internal consistency can be problematic, except for the common experience that people can have based on their skin color in society, right? And I don't wanna speak for anybody, but Hispanic encapsulates a whole lot of people versus Latin American, um, versus Mexican, versus Latina, versus, versus you know, black. all that intersectionality, versus black. Not everybody that is I'm black is African American. Right. I, I ask my students, I'm like, David Ortiz, what is he? And they just get conf real confused. <laughs> you know, not everybody or is Pedro black Martinez. Is so we're think about that. They just go, I, I don't, but he looks black, but you know, he, he, he's from the Dominican, but I don't know, what is he? I'm like, I don't know, you tell me. And I think the problematizing of it is a really important step to not assuming that these 
categories have this kind of biological validity, right. which they don't. Absolutely. I just think it just made when you were saying that I think about being in the like when I lived in Jersey, when I worked for worked for Nabisco um, and going into the Dominican hair salon and they sat there and spoke Spanish and then I didn't respond and they were like, you're not Dominican. And I was like, no. And they're like, and then it's like mind blowing. Right. Because, and it's just, it, it's, it's a, it's such a simple, but it's such a big, it is a big deal because there are lots of different intersections and in the way things get, we get parsed apart for any ethnicity. Right. Uh, Charlotte, do you have any other questions? There are some other questions. I, uh, I think I'd like to combine a couple questions that came through in the chat because Sounds they are <laughs> similar. This is even a step before the question we just addressed. So the questions are from two separate folks here. How do we identify and correct unconscious biases in our organizations? And what practical steps do you recommend for people to take low risk approaches to test the waters and how they gather insights or start these conversations? I'll, let, like I'm to gonna, begin. Yeah, Sandy? I'll take this. I'm gonna take the second half of uh, that, that second question um, in terms of low risk. So I use the example of I, I work, you know, work for an Indian owned company. Um, and diversity right now seems to only be defined as being a woman. So when everything started happening, I really had to say, you know, I, I was, as I say, I would sit at my computer every day, hope, you know, sitting and hoping and praying that they were going to send something out because they send out a lot of other messages and there was nothing happening. And I finally said to my manager, because I have a good relationship with her, I said, I'm very bothered by the fact that there's not been anything said from on behalf of our company. And she said, you know, I was wondering the same thing, but hadn't taken any action. So I said, well, I just as a heads up, I'm going to reach out to our HR person because I feel like something needs to be said. I'm not the only Brown person who works for this, you know, works for this company. Um, let me go ahead and start to uh, let me send an email as a part of trying to start the conversation. And so I wasn't expecting that our international president, it was couched within what's going on here in the Americas to not uh, want to pull in, um, pull in an expectation of what's around a global perspective, but let me start with a small piece. And I actually, we actually got a response back out to the entire organization, um, entire America's organization from our international president in terms of the organization stance. So I think sometimes it's the willingness to take that little step um, with someone that you feel who will be willing to hear you um, you know, in terms of this is what I'm seeing or I'm feeling or doesn't seem to be represented, um, just as a way to, I guess, take one little step versus, again, not anything at all. And then the other thing I would also mention is if your company is not doing anything in terms of like, how do we recognize diversity? I mean, there's, you know, a day of the, a day of the month or a day of every, a day, throughout the course of the year that are dedicated to different causes, everything from ice cream to bread. But then you've also got your months that are represented um, where it speaks to what's going on culturally from, you know, where you can bring those things into the, into the, the fold in a kind of benign way without overdoing it. So th those are my thoughts. Uh, other thoughts, Thomas. Um, 
So the first thing is, it's not one class or one session. I think a lot of people make the mistake of let's have this one training mm -hmm. and everything will be better. It's a really, I, I've been doing this for like five, 10 years and I'm still learning. And so the ability to have conversations about this being a long term is key. The second thing is you really need to have what's called a root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. And what root cause analysis does is help you really understand the root cause of the bias. And so it's, again, as I mentioned before, there's more than one kind of bias. I'll give you the perfect example. I was doing a training for one company and they thought that there was racism in hiring uh, and promotion. And in reality, after doing a root cause analysis, what they found was that the president of the company, I won't tell what school, but like they only recruited from that school because their circle was that school. So right. even though he wasn't a racist, he was practicing systemic racism, but not because he meant to, but because his circle was his recruitment circle. And nobody ever thought about that because they had never done the root cause analysis. And so I would say that's probably the, one of the key pieces uh, in starting the conversation because that then allows you to explore what types of bias exist. I think it's a really crucial point, and I want to get Stephanie's thoughts too, but I always talk about in my classes, again, didn't create it, individual discrimination versus institutional discrimination, where people can just do what they're supposed to do and result and try to, try to be quote-unquote equal and achieve inequity in the process, going back to the, one of the slides we talked about. So I think it's such a powerful example of people who might have good intentions still having bad outcomes because they aren't thinking through the implications of their actions. Stephanie, what were your thoughts? So to kind of talk about that from an individual standpoint, I guess, um, in my mind, I think of it as maybe the first step is educating yourself. Try to really understand what is going on in terms of how you feel, what your biases might be. Educate yourself on the situation. Um, there are plenty of books out here now that are talking about the, the topic. Um, you know, um, what is it? Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, there's the Jane Elliott brown eye blue eye <laughs> video that, that right. from the um, 60s that still I think is, is somewhat relevant now even for trying to understand how prejudice and bias gets um, into, into, the, into the systems. Um, and so trying to really understand your, you know, from an education standpoint and then having conversations with people. I mean, even if it's not necessarily to, you know, Sandy escalated it up, but she started by talking to someone else about what she was seeing as not happening and she, what should we be doing here. So maybe start having conversations with other people to see what's going on, see how they're feeling, um, you know, and hold people accountable. I mean, it, you're going to have, I mean, at some point, someone has to take the initiative to hold the folks accountable to doing something. So um, some of those are ways that, that probably can kind of at least get it started. Thomas, you had she wanted Thomas to add something wanted, to that? raising his hand again. Yes, <laughs> yeah. My mom's an educator, so I, I kind of picked that up from her. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Add to that, Stephanie, is this idea about ERGs. And so a lot of people spend time talking about resource, right. employee resource, which is, is an ERG. And so oftentimes we do it as well as people in, in behavior as we like to segment people on demographics. I'm a huge fan of psychographics. And so I think you can really get to the core of people who they are by psychographics. And ERG is nothing but psychographics. And so I think talking about this is hard, but talking to people who are similar, not necessarily in race, but like in attitude and style and culture activities, I think allows you to have a, a little bit easier way to have the conversation. So creating ERGs at your organization uh, is also a way to start having some of those biased conversations. 
one of the things that I emphasize in some of the work that I've done is what I call the pronoun progression, going from us and them to you and I to we. Because whenever, rarely do good things come out of the statement, those people. <laughs> Even if you think you're saying something good, it's still probably not very good. So that social distance between us and them is usually pretty big. You and I, those people are such and such, but you, Thomas, you're pretty cool. You're like, you know, I've heard this before being Arab American. You're one of the good ones. You're different than the rest of them. I'm like, great, thanks. But we moved a little bit closer. And then the we is there's no more distance. We can organize ourselves and our identities around some shared orientation. And ERGs are a great way of trying to accomplish that. Stephanie? The microaggression is what I picked up on with the I, the we, and the us and the them. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so. And microaffirmations too, trying to find ways, you know, when you know microaggressions are a thing, in what ways can you perform and practice microaffirmations, even with people you don't know, right. in your community around you, if there are, you know, if you don't live in a diverse community, in what ways can you make those who are part of that group that is less diverse, that's part of that minority group, whatever they are, make them feel more comfortable? What little things can you do throughout your day, which is what we started with, to make their lives that much easier and better and feel that, that, that much more included. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, Charlotte, do you have another question you wanna, before we close out? Uh, yes, there are a few questions that we got, so um, maybe we can investigate the, the remainder of the questions later. Thank you for all your wonderful questions, folks. Um, we'll end with the question, uh, so it starts with a nice compliment. This event sets the gold standard for productive professional and civil conversation about a topic that many struggle with. What personal advice can you share with others as they contemplate their actions? So where do we take it from here? I'll start. So I'll go back to what I said before, sort of um, educating yourself, <laughs> making sure you're clear. I mean, within, you know, in terms of how racism is, the biases that are there. Um, I learned something today. I didn't realize there were 16 different biases. Um, <laughs> but trying to understand what those really are and how they play out. Um, have conversations, hold people accountable. And that whole microaggression thing for me has been um, something I've been sort of talking to my friends of non-color about. Because it's one of those things where it's so embedded in what we're doing and how we operate that some of these things don't even come about. So when you hear people talk about how emotional she is, well, is she really emotional or is she passionate? You know, um, how when you would you consider a, a man doing that same thing and acting the same way? Do you describe that man that same way? So those little things in terms of how you're perceiving people and how you're um, how you're describing people. Um, one of the biggest things that came out in 2008 that used to drive me insane is how people would describe Obama as articulate. Um, and that term to me is one of the biggest microaggressions that kind of annoys me because how can a man who has a law degree, <laughs> two Ivy League um, educations not be articulate? So, um, you know, so when you think about how you're describing people or doing things, um, those kinds of behaviors, I think you need to either check yourself, but also check the people who are saying it. Be that ally um, when you hear things that are happening or see things that are happening. Try to be the ally for, you know, for, for, for tampering that down as much as you can. 
Thank you. Sandy, you were going to say something as well. I was going to say something, but all I can say is like, yes, Stephanie. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I don't think I need to chime in. I feel like she hit so much of what I was, what I was thinking. Thomas, do you want to brave the waters and try to add to what Stephanie said? Sure. Um, th there's this idea that racism conversations should be led by Black people. And I'll tell you, it's tiring. And so being able to lead the conversation, no matter how scary it is as a non-Black person, um, A, studies will tell you that it's better received by executive leadership if it doesn't come from a person of color. Um, and it doesn't come from somebody who's in HR as this HR initiative. Mm. And so being able to lead as a person who's responsible really for customer experience internally, where you're treating executive leadership and other peers as your customers uh, and leading that conversation, even as you're learning it yourself, I think um, is a great way to start. Uh, the other one is really understanding that you're not asking for the, the book of the month or the flavor of the month. You're saying this, I think, is a great way forward for the organization. And I want to be part of that. And being able to lay out a strategy and a plan. So not just going and say, I have this idea, which I can guarantee you would be dismissed. But having thought through a, a skeleton, uh, a, a set of outputs and outcomes that you think could happen if we go down this route and a timeline. And then going and just having a conversation with a couple of your peers and saying, hey, this is what I was thinking. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And then get together a coalition of individuals that both look like you and don't look like you. And then start to, to, to pitch that to other people in the organization and let them be the mouthpiece for you to, to, to upper management. And I think that's just the best way as opposed to you by yourself uh, with a new topic trying to go to management and turn around a ship. Uh, I've never seen that work before. And it will be very frustrating to you. All right. Well, thank you all for that. And I think one of the, one thing I can say is it's never too late to do a better job. And we all have the opportunity, especially as allies, to do a better job. And it starts with us. And racial conversations shouldn't be difficult. Um, I have them in class all the time. I think they only become difficult when we get defensive. Um, I'm talking not as we as this group. I'm talking about those of us who can be allies, get defensive, and feel we're blamed. And if you feel like you're defensive and blamed, I think it's a good opportunity to examine why that might be and then what you can do, what we can do to change what we're doing to have the outcome that we should want, which is diversity, inclusion, and ultimately equity. So I wanna thank the panelists for joining us. Before everyone jumps off, um, again, I don't wanna get into trouble and lose my, my job here. Charlotte's sharing a screen. There are some uh, announcements to be made. So I don't know if Sandy, do you want to talk about the uh, CXPA sure. Atlanta events? Yeah, absolutely. So we are um, in the third quarter, um, which I don't know where the time is flying to, but every month, um, the second Tuesday, we are continuing. We used to do this in person, but we've been doing a virtual CX knowledge exchange morning power up from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. If you want to learn more on how to join us, um, you can uh, find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook or uh, feel free to send me an email. Um, we don't publish the link ahead of time so that we can have our, um, you know, a, a nice conversation without any fear of being Zoom bombed um, by having it published out on LinkedIn without um, context. Great, thank you. And on the next slide, Charlotte, if you might, 
we have um, a feedback survey that's going to be in the chat momentarily, which might be right now. So before you go, please take a few minutes to fill it out. We are very excited to bring this content to you and love to hear your thoughts and your reactions. Apologize to those who gave us questions and we weren't able to get to them. We're going to uh, have a conversation amongst us about how to best answer those conversations because every question around this topic is a good question and needs some time to be answered. And your responses to the survey are also going to help us create free future or the CXPA create uh, future virtual content and events. And if you enjoyed this event, we encourage you to join the CXPA. I'm a member and you can visit CXPA.org to learn more. Sandy's a member, she's also certified. And there's a lot of great events in your local chapter, so check them out, it's a great chance to network. I got involved in this organization by just going to a coffee event that was taking place in Boston and here I am now having a panel on race. So you never know folks. <laughs> So I think there's one more slide we want to go to, which is, of course, to thank everybody about you for, for joining us. And we want to continue the conversation. We have a hashtag for that, which is, whoops, we missed it. We got to go back to it. Well, I'll tell you the hashtag anyway, because I have it on my screen. Hashtag racial equity in CX. That's racial equity in CX. That's the hashtag. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, Confirm It. We want to thank Bentley University, again, because I work there. So thanks for the uh, webinar link. And we want to thank CXPA. And we want to thank the entire committee. And trust me, folks, it took a long time to pull together um, with a, a group of committed professionals who've dedicated a, quite a bit of time to thinking about sensitively and deeply and purposefully, what would be the best event to tackle this topic? And so I really wanna thank them. I wanna thank Charlotte and Tim and everybody for making this event possible. Thank you for attending. And again, thank our panelists and we look forward to having you at future events. And so I'll stop and see if there's anything else that I've missed that needs to be uh, presented on. Charlotte, we don't have yeah. the survey just yet, so hang tight for just a moment, everyone. Sorry for the inconvenience. We'll hang have the tight survey. for just a moment. You're not allowed <laughs> to the, leave your in folks. the chat shortly. Gary, that means you have to do um, a tap dance for us. I, you know what? I'm a professor. I can fill time. Not a problem. <laughs> Pretty easily. I would also add that, folks, if you don't want to read your read a verse, go online. Netflix, Thirteenth, great documentary. Yes. Thank you. Right. That. That's terrific. Um, yep. There's other great documentaries out there um, looking at various kinds of injustices and inequities across institutions, healthcare, education, criminal justice, uh, sports, right? We can go on and on down the list. So there's lots of opportunities to become educated around these topics. And a lot of them don't take much time investment. It just takes personal commitment to want to learn. So make sure you look for those opportunities. Always vet your sources right? There's a lot of stuff out there, folks. Be careful. Vet your sources and consider what people are saying, even if you don't initially agree with it. At least think about it, because by thinking about it, at least you're making yourself open to examine your own attitudes and possibly broaden your horizons a little bit. We got the, so this, we got the link, Charlotte? Yeah, the survey should now be in there. Thank you so much, Carl, for placing that in the chat. That should be available to everyone in the chat. It's a survey gizmo link, so please take a couple minutes to answer those questions. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much. Um, we look forward to seeing you at future events, possibly around uh, racial equity. And we will talk to you soon and see you hopefully in person sometime in the near future. And if not, we'll see you again online. Take care. Terrific. Thank you. I want to thank the Boston and Atlanta CXPA chapters and the panelists for their efforts in bringing this panel together. 
and thanks to the audience for all the great questions. You can see a link to the video version of the panel in our show notes on the Experience by Design website. You can also find links to the panelists as well. What are your thoughts on how to inspire racial equity in your organization? In what ways can we go about designing more inclusive experiences? And for CX professionals who are listening, what is the role of your job as a CX professional and the role of your professional association in this effort? What do you think could be done on both counts to help further this dialogue? Let us know your perspectives on the topic at our Experience by Design LinkedIn page and contribute your thoughts. You can also communicate with us directly at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That's experiencex, letter X, design.com. We'd love to hear from you and enjoy having your feedback, as well as any ideas you have around topics or persons you'd want to hear more about or even have us interview and cover. We want to continue to thank you for your support as well. We love having these conversations. Each one's different, unique, and we learn a ton from all of them. Whether the topics are a vital part of our national dialogue like today's, or even explorations of unique areas of experience design, they all contribute to create this larger mosaic of experience design that really is an exciting emergent area for all of us who care about creating experiences that matter to whatever audience we're trying to reach. So with that, thanks and see you next time on Experience by Design. Bye.